The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, joining you from the lands of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples, the Songhees and Esquimalt First Nations. It's commonly known as Victoria, B.C., Canada. And this land is shared by the Sanchothan speakers, the Hokomilam speakers, the Hokominam speakers. Actually, there's at least seven nations all within an hour of where I live. And I am deeply grateful for the gracious hospitality shown to me. I also want to express much respect to the indigenous peoples fighting right now, literally right this minute, to protect old growth forests uh, on this land, again, within just like a couple hours of where I am, um, as well as fighting for respective Aboriginal rights and title. Haichika for all those spending time at Fairy Creek right now. Whew, it's been a while, eh? Although, you know, I do tend to work in batches or seasons for this podcast. I had not intended for eight months to pass uh, since my last season. So apologies for my pod fade. What can I say, though, right? It's bound to happen after seven years of podcasting. Also, sadly, trauma is a growth industry, and I have been really busy, busy with clients and classes, as well as advancing my somatics certifications and writing a book. Yes, my friends, The Spirited Kitchen, Recipes and Rituals for the Wheel of the Year has been submitted (laughs) with my editor at the publisher, and it will be released in the fall of 2022 through an imprint of W.W. Norton called Countryman Press. So lucky. And I hope you'll keep tracking with me over the coming year for sneak previews and Wheel of the Year workshops in the lead up to that book launch, which really is truly the most mm, substantial piece of work I've ever brought forth. Cookbooks, man. It's like a whole different animal than, than writing a text-only um, book. Anyway, speaking of workshops, check out my website, CarmenSpaniola.com, to learn more about the Numinous Network and all the upcoming workshops and courses uh, coming online this fall. New attachment course coming in September by popular demand from folks who were like, I know you have attachment for parents of teenagers, but what do you do for adults? So this September, new course, it's called Secure, the Magical Art and Subtle Science of Adult Attachment. So it's attachment for everyone. Okay, enough updates. Here's the main event. I'm going to tell you right now that when you get to the end of this interview, it'll, it'll feel too fast, too short. It'll feel like eating one chip, but don't worry. I am already lining up a follow-up episode with today's fantastic guest, Dr. Cindy Brannan, author of Keeping Her Keys, an introduction to Hecate's modern witchcraft. So after a successful career in academia and healthcare, Cindy transitioned to focusing on reclaiming the sacred feminine after she became convinced that mainstream psychology was insufficient to lead us to personal wholeness. Um, Cindy's work focuses on personal healing through depth psychology, herbalism, rituals, meditations, and explorations of the deeper self. She founded the Kovina Institute, a soul school dedicated to the pursuit of wholeness through structured programs of study and transcendent experiences. Sounds like a woman after my own heart, right? Structured study and transcendent experiences. That's like my happy place. So yes, that is exactly why I sought her out for my own personal mentoring uh, and why I'm so thrilled to welcome to the podcast 
my esteemed teacher and role model, author of the best-selling books Keeping Her Keys and Entering Hecate's Garden, preeminent scholar and educator of Hecatean witchcraft. So excited to welcome Dr. Cindy Brannan. So Cindy, what identities do you lead with? I love this question so much. And for me, when I contemplate what my identities are, it's like um, all these word bubbles kind of pop up. And then at the same time, I want to burst all those bubbles. Are you with me? Does that make sense? Yes. (laughs) Yes. So for me, I would identify as a woman. Um, And it's funny, I was talking to someone about this just yesterday about how we're at this really interesting place where children coming up today, and, and certainly adults do this too, are finding this space to move beyond the the traditional gender roles that women, I think, of my age, you know, that for us, like I identify as a woman. And I kind of feel like I miss the cool, you know, choose your own gender bus. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which I, and I love, like, I love seeing all the, you know, the, the young people and, and certainly people my age do this as well. But for me, I've really, like, I fought long and hard for my space in womanhood and how I define womanhood. And I'm comfortable in this space that I carved out. You know, when I was really young, you know, I was always called a tomboy and didn't fit into kind of, you know, uh, pretty girl culture. And as I grew up, you know, I became, uh, you know, as I went through university and then as I got into graduate school, you know, the, the psych department I was in was still largely male, very traditional. So to me, it was a battle to carve myself into being a woman that fit within that huge archetype of womanhood. As someone who's never, who's always been like a a feminist, a rabble rouser, someone who was never happy with the status quo, someone who, you know, didn't want to be married or do any of those things that are kind of in that narrow lane of gender for women a lot of times, especially women of my generation that were Mm -hmm. born in the early 70s. Um, so I fought long and hard for where I to to be comfortable within womanhood because I didn't have these cool options when I was you know yeah <laughs> yeah right yeah, I get it yeah for so sure. I'm really so I I do I lead with woman and and proud of it you know I used to really resist uh, and resist being a woman in a lot of ways you know back in the 80s when I would was in high school and just getting involved in feminism and. And being in academia, of course, there's still, even today, there's so many issues for women in academia. Really great new show on Netflix called The Chair. True to life, that show. Um, So woman, I lead with, I would say woman and proud of it. And certainly space for everybody else. And I love, like, you know, I am, I just love diversity and I love seeing people express themselves. But I feel like, well, that wasn't an option for me when I, you know, and now, and I fought for my space where I am in my very, you know, being high both on, I guess, some feminine traits and some masculine traits, what we used to call high androgyny back in my day when I was in grad school. So woman, I lead with woman. 
Um, I would lead with survivor or thriver. I would lead with that. Um, I would lead, you know, with someone who like has complex, like a complex trauma history that I've lived through that. And I'm on, you know, and it's really, I'm in a very different place with it. And I would also lead with someone, because I think this is an identity, especially us, who are, those of us who are women and certainly women of a certain generation. Um, I would say, you know, I'm someone who's had an eating disorder since I was 12 years old. So can we just finally talk about that? Mm-hmm. Finally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. let's just finally talk about the things that we still don't talk about. Mm-hmm. So sometimes, you know, in choosing our identities, we can choose certain identities to be like, I'm very healed and very comfortable from this. And I want to expand our discussion to include these things. Mm-hmm. And I'm very happy um, being on my own and not being in a relationship. Cause mm-hmm. that's another identity pushback, you know, that I've gotten a lot, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, Oh, you know, I can introduce you to so-and-so or, <laughs> you know, you'll find the right person. Right. And um and so can we talk about that as well, that it's okay if you don't want to be partnered? So I think then, you know, the usual mom, writer, uh, psychopomp. I, always, I see myself as psychopomp, a soul guide to others. You know, you know, in terms of being a psychologist, psyche, of course, means soul. Although, you know, a lot of times in modern settings, what a psychologist does is not very soulful. Um, so I would certainly see those things. So I guess those are just a few of my identities. For sure. I mean, we didn't even mention that you're probably one of the world's foremost experts on Hecate. <laughs> so that's exciting. <laughs> it is exciting. Yeah, I do consider myself daughter of Hecate, uh, child of Hermes. Mm. So tell me about the first time you had a significant encounter with Hecate. And and what would you be willing to share about how she initiated you? And also, how did you know it was her? How did you come to know this was her? This is, I love talking about this. And I absolutely love, like, hearing other stories. You know, so when you ask me this question, I'm like, I really, I, I want to hear your story. You know, like, right. <laughs> I'm always like the, the data collector, right? It's like, what's, what's, the, what's your story? So for me, I had a interesting experience and I wrote about it in the book and I talked about it in other places where um, I was folding laundry late at night, super tired, kind of in that super liminal zone when you're tired, but you got to get things done. I think a lot of us can relate to that. And I had just heard this voice inside my head that said, it's time. And I knew that it was Hecate, which to me, which to me was such a bizarre experience, you know, because I only had like a very, very cursory knowledge of Hecate at the time. Like it wasn't like Hecate was on my mind and she certainly wasn't popular because this goes back many, many years, right? Long before um, even those in like pagan and Wiccan and goddess circles were really talking about Hecate at all. So I knew it was her. I started doing some research, which was a lot of like, uh, you know, going into forums and things like it wasn't like it is today where you could, there was no Wikipedia page, for example. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And, um, 
And I said, yeah, I really think this is Hecate. And I really think this is a really, it's a numinous experience. I felt a little crazy. Um, you know, I'd always been really drawn to strong female archetypal figures from myth and also historical ones. Um, my name, Cynthia, is an epithet of Hecate and Artemis, interestingly, Kynthos um, in Greek, Cynthia in Latin. And so I'd certainly like I knew about Artemis, I knew about Isis, you know, knew about all of the ones that were kind of popular at the time from being in goddess circles with friends and so on. And so it was a, it was a profound experience that in that moment, you know, I just knew something inside of me cracked open. And unless you've had an experience like that, there is really no way to language it. But if you've had the experience, you know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For sure. So I, I, I want to stick with Hecate for a bit here. I have some like a specific question that I want to ask you, but let's keep with the framework. So in your book, Keeping Her Keys, which is just an absolute, like just awesome resource for those of us who like book learning, you know, and um, like to have that little sort of pocket guide. It, it's, I mean, it's so full and so rich. Um, but in that book, you talk about how over the centuries, Hecate's portrayal and her correspondences have kind of shifted. And that's due in part to Sarah Isles Johnston scholarship in her work that came out in 1990 called Hecate Satira. And, and it sort of helps fill out the picture of Hecate's ancient origins as, you know, we know her today pretty popularly or, you know, Instagram cool as the mother of witches, right? And and that was sort of popularized in maybe the uh, we might call it the neo pagan movement. But actually, Johnston's work is one of the ones that lifts up that actually, you know, there are some myths where Hecate is depicted as, for instance, Medea's biological mother, not just a a mentor in magic and Medea the the sorceress. So, so. Yes, she's the mother of witches. That that's that's great. That's both a, a current understanding that's linked to something ancient. But then you highlight these four distinct categories of how we might come to know Hecate. So one is as soul of the world or anima mundi, right? This big concept that that Johnston she describes that aspect as being like this is Hecate as transmitter of ideas. Um, the source of both individual uh, souls and of life itself, but also this divider and bond between like the sensate or like sensual world and the intelligible world, the thing we can like cognitively, we can talk about. Um, so that's like one whole category, pretty huge supreme deity kind of stuff, right? That we're bringing there. Then you talk about also Hecate as primordial force, kind of something different. There's nuance there. Then as dark goddess, and then as crone aspect of the triple goddess. So all, each and every one of those feels like a book in and of itself. And this kind of all was like in one segment of <laughs> your book, Keeping Your Keys. That's just like one example of this. Like, you know, it, it it's a, a book that sort of belies how huge the themes are. So could you take a bit of time to describe the difference as you see it between those four aspects of this goddess. 
I this is such a lovely question. And I spent a lot of time researching this and contemplating this and weaving together the threads and the themes that kind of emerge from all of the ways that she was written about in the ancient text um, depicted in ancient iconography and then kind of her uh, Christian phase and how Mm -hmm. she was portrayed by, um, you know, the patriarchal Christian world. Shakespeare's Macbeth, of course, Mm -hmm. is the the example that we all know. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And weaving that together to see like what emerges and also meshing that with, you know, the experiences that uh, people are having today mm. with Hecate, you know, and looking at what serious modern scholars, but also um, mystics and thinkers are writing about Hecate. So certainly, you know, Thomas More's Dark Nights of the Soul, mm-hmm. his section on Hecate is phenomenal. James Hillman in his different works, the great depth psychologist uh, wrote about Hecate in different places in his work. Mm. So I would certainly recommend, um, you know, going to places like that, stepping outside of the Wicca neo-pagan community and see how Hecate is being written about in this way. Um, So you can weave that together with what you might read in what we might call a Wiccan or neo-pagan book. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a lot of serious ongoing scholarship about Hecate in the classical world. Um, and also with her position in what's known as the Chaldean Oracles, which is um, a collection of fragments that are in the Neoplatonic school of philosophy. Um, there's also a lot of serious scholarship about her role there in terms of a philosophy, you know, in the tradition of Plato and Socrates and so on. So there is a lot of places to study what is written about Hecate and that what is actually kind of presented in the Wiccan or neo-pagan world that we might see is a, is a certain lane, mm. but there is so much more. Um, and, you know, and, and to see her as anima mundi, which for me, in my personal journey as a seeker of the deeper world, soul of the, to see her as soul of the world is how I experience her, that what was when I stumbled into the Chaldean oracles and also um, Dr. Johnson's dissertation, which is published as Hecate Soterra, that when I stumbled into that, which is heavy academic language, um, so it's not a it's not an easy read. <laughs> but when I stumbled into that, I felt like that thrum of resonance, even though this is written as an academic paper. It's not a how-to guide like my Keeping Her Keys book, which is very practical, very accessible. And, you know, by design, Mm -hmm. I made that book to be very accessible. But to me, Anima Mundi is this force that is beyond comprehension, you know, to the truly numinous, right? Mm -hmm. The truly numinous that as mortals, we may assign 
different mythologies, different personifications uh, to try to explain what is so much greater than us. Mm-hmm. So to see Hecate as goddess of witches, for example, which is such a popular way of understanding her, and I love it. And, uh, and in entering Hecate's garden, I work within that archetype mm-hmm. and weave a narrative around Hecate and Medea and Circe from that perspective. It's great. It's so beautiful. Yeah. And and very we, sisterly and I I um uh, there's kinship in it which I love instead of the solitary figure of her aloof as queen of witches, right? It's like oh there's kinship and bonding amongst women there. I anyway, sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead. <laughs> right. And I really wanted to bring that forward. You know, bring that idea forward that because we live with a definition of Hecate that is largely transmitted directly through Macbeth. Um, And even, you know, a lot of text and how she's written about are still through that lens. Like you said, this aloof queen of witches, she's kind of nefarious. And I mean, that's cool. And I, I, you know, adore those aspects of her, I'm not rejecting them at all. And I really, like I said, I danced with them in entering Hecate's garden intentionally in an act of reclaiming, but also to celebrate the way we can find beauty in how we at times are shaped by the patriarchy and we can turn it around and be like, I'm going to find beauty in what you slapped on me. And therefore I completely removes your power over me. I'm not going to reject it. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to transmute this into something of beauty. You know, Regina Maleficarum, which was originally like a slur. You know, Christians use that as a slur. And I thought, let's find the beauty in that. Let's find the beauty in Hecate as queen of witches, who is Anima Mundi. Because if you are the queen of witches, in my view, then it would make sense that you were Anima Mundi. Because if you do witchcraft or magic, whether it's astrological or you work with angels, any of those things, it's about getting into that flow. And that's essentially what Anima Mundi is and where Anima Mundi abides. Whether you're reading the Chaldean Oracles, Dr. Johnson's work, um, work by Jung, work by Hillman, work by all these great thinkers who are talking about Anima Mundi, the feminine world soul, it's flow, which of course in modern psychology is very much um, a focus, you know, getting into flow state, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if you are the queen of witches, it would make sense that not only do you govern flow, but you are the flow. Yes, nice one. Okay, quick word from our sponsor, and we'll get right back to that conversation. So this episode is brought to you by Hide Tanning 101, a live online textiles training happening September 2nd to 30th, 2021. So hide tanning is the art of creating textile from animal hide. Have you ever thought of it that way? So this is something I've practiced with rabbit, sheep, and deer, and I studied with my dear friend and previous podcast guest, by the way, Mara Kerr. In High Tanning 101, you're going to learn the four fundamental types of natural high tanning, plus the historical, cultural, and community resonance behind this ancient and embodied craft. So you're not just learning like the technical skill of high tanning. It's also a journey of personal growth and discovery. I found this for myself anyway, as you explore how high tanning techniques are really 
outgrowths of the ecosystem and the cultures of nearly every continent. I don't know if they have high tanning history on Antarctica, but everywhere else has a tradition. So with guidance on methodology and DIY systems, you'll be ready to dive into your own high tanning practice at your own pace and use High Tanning 101 as a resource for your own learning journey. High Tanning 101 is hosted by Mara, as I mentioned, along with my other dear friend that I just love so much, Adele Arsenault. Mara is a settler high tanner, herbalist, and teacher, and Adele is a Cree Métis high tanner, artist, and facilitator. September is the first and only live version of this training, so that means it comes with added question and answer sessions, but also some very sweet raffle prizes for those who sign up live. There's a special discount code for listeners of the Numinous podcast, so just use all caps code NUMINOUS at the checkout to get 10% off tuition. Sign up at fernandrow.com, F-E-R-N-A-N-D-R-O-E.com. And now back to Cindy. Mm, that gives me chills. Right? How's that different from primordial force? Well, the, I find this is interesting um, because in the Chaldean oracles, and also if you look at some text, older texts that are that feature her, like Hesiod's Theogony, um, you know that he's dancing. The, the Theogony and other texts really kind of position her as a great mother figure, and the great mother figure, of course, is differentiated from a goddess figure because the great mother is that primordial force from which all things flow. So, to me, there is perhaps a like a a nuanced distinction that to the ancients. Um, and if you're interested in like a really serious treatment of the great mother archetype, Eric Neumann's classic, The Great Mother, um, which is a deep dive into the archetype about uh, the great mother versus the goddess, that the great mother could certainly be uh, seen as anima mundi, but yet it, it represents a primordial force from which all is birthed. In the Chaldean oracles, you know, they reference that as well. They say, you know, all the universe flows from her flank. I really like these kind of uptight <laughs> white guys who translate things this way. It makes me chuckle. Yeah. As we all give birth out of our flank. Our flank. Yeah. <laughs> like, like Zeus giving birth to Dionysus there, popping out of his thigh. Yeah. <laughs> so, um. So, you know, I, I, but the primordial force and, and seeing Hecate as a great mother figure. And again, if we're weaving this, you know, stretching back, we're looking back 3000 years in history at all these different pieces of knowledge that's been, that remains. And I believe that knowledge that remains, remains for a purpose. You know, it's not an accident. What we don't know about, you know, certain things in the past I think that it's for a reason. And what we do know is also for a reason. So we see this Hecate who most likely, um, you know, because some people like to be like, well, where did she come from? And it's like, well, I don't, like she is. <laughs> right. <laughs> but if you want to talk about terms of recorded history, we're talking about modern day, certain parts of modern day Turkey, most likely, but also a similar influence that's kind of looping around from the North in that part of the, the Mediterranean. And this is very much Hecate as a great mother before um, that part of the world kind of really splintered into um, taking goddesses and 
and locating certain certain archetypes with them because that's the I mean the Egyptians did it but the Greeks did it the Romans did it and as you know like as what we now consider civilization grew this became something that happened more that the great mother became like different goddesses right and then would you say and so then we have the patriarchal influence of uh you know the maybe the more nomadic tribes from the steppe, you know, if we follow Maria Gambutis' Kurgan hypothesis, then we'd say, and then patriarchy gives us the dark goddess. Is that... Am, am exactly. I, okay. Yeah. Maybe want to say more about that? So I find the whole dark goddess archetype interesting, particularly because it reverberates so many... So sorry, it reverberates so strongly with many of us. Mm. It's like we discover something that we never knew existed, you know? And so I don't like to sound like I'm picking on anyone who says they identify with the dark goddesses, be it Hecate, the Morrigan, the Black Madonna, Black Tara, etc. And at the same time, I think we all have the sophistication to acknowledge that the need to call her a dark goddess is a byproduct of patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Before patriarchy, again, what we consider civilization, which is patriarchal, um, you know, there was no need for the great mother to be dark, light, or otherwise, because she was all. Mm-hmm. And because, you know, it within our patriarchal system started with the Greeks and Romans and then, you know, the Christian Europeans, et cetera. We all know how it goes. Um, and if they, the, the whole idea was to dismantle Anima Mundi, the great mother and to minimize her. And they broke her down into different roles. Hecate became goddess of witches. Mm-hmm. Artemis became goddess of the hunt. And so on, you know, like we, they were reduced to stereotypes mm-hmm. and nefarious, more and increasingly nefarious stereotypes over the centuries. Um, and like, I, I know I keep referencing Macbeth, but that is like a highlight mm-hmm. of what happened to women, what happened to women who were mystics mm-hmm. uh, and healers and so on. Like it, it's Hecate is. Uh, like at the heart of the archetype of what happened in a broader sense to women and others, but mostly women who were vilified for being mystics, healers, um, you know, what we might call witches today. Mm-hmm. Although of course that's a very slippery concept, right? Because it's, mm-hmm. it's changing. Like I can't even keep up with, <laughs> all the iterations of the archetype of the witch. It's like someone turned the dial on the archetype of the witch up all the way <laughs> and let it all out, right? It's like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just, so much of it is beautiful because mm-hmm. it's a real, you know, and sometimes I'm wondering if for those who become very infatuated and enchanted by witch, Wicca, um, you know, if they step back and say, I'm part of this revolution. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I'm just here with my candles, mm-hmm. you know, with my spells, doing my thing, doing my ritual, um, and calling myself that. It's just, it's amazing because it's a true revolution, you know, and, and people get very recent. 
it's very, very recent. It wasn't mm-hmm. long ago. It was illegal. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a case, I think, in Ontario, not I want to not too long ago, maybe 10 years ago, where a tarot reader, and I'm not talking about tarot readers, but I'm just talking about this kind of business in general, you know, where that I think the woman was, um, there were still like laws on the books in Ontario, <laughs> keeping it Canadian here, yeah. um, where, you know, you could be uh, prosecuted for telling fortunes for money. Wow. For a cult. Wow. So, you know, it's like we've come a long way um, and it's a really exciting time to be exploring a goddess that's as complex as Hecate, who is Dark Mother, because in our lens, in our programming, you know, we've been conditioned since birth to believe that a goddess needs to be beautiful, um, purely of the light, Mm -hmm. purely kind and uncomplicated and never angry never Never, angry you know a reflection of what the cultural mores are for us as women Mm -hmm. and Hecate is is she breaks all that I think when you and I think that's why people just connect to her because there is such a longing inside of all of us for something deeper and there's a longing for us to shatter. And she's a great shatterer, right? She's Rixapile, the earth cleaver, and so mm-hmm. on, you know, Hegemonin, the one who kicks down gates. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, this is what people wrote about her. People like you and I, over 2000 years ago, recorded, you know, it's ex- writing these words about her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think she is the great upheaval. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she scares and- the life into us, right? Ooh, yes. And so what about her as crone? When when did that develop? That also seems to have some patriarchal feelings around it of like, ah, this is waning energy or something. And I feel like that's also being redefined in this age where, you know, we know more about menopause, we know more about our bodies and nervous systems. And, and I think as um, people going through that experience, uh, that is this is the first generation I think that knows anything about what menopause actually is other than um, whispered words, perhaps intergenerationally, not that um, the crone aspect is necessarily tied to biology, but in terms of like, what are the changes that have occurred? I, I feel like the crone is also many of us are hungry to reclaim. Like every time I see a girlfriend, we're always comparing who's got more gray hair because we just want it so bad, right? It's like there's something so um, aspirational about being a woman who's come through some things and come into her own and is actually more powerful as she enters the winter of her life. Where do you see that shift historically with Hecate? I have, so I myself, I've just started menopause. And I think that's another thing. I'm not putting it as an identity because to me, this is a phase of life. You know, you know, like, so some identities I think are more permanent. And so I'm going to start talking from my own perspective because I think it's important for us to say this is where I'm coming from. So my perspective is I'm an early menopausal woman. I'm embracing it as a normal phase of life that some of the things that we've been conditioned to reject and and, uh, use pharmaceuticals for, like hot flashes, like my body is doing that for a purpose. And we're just going to get into it. We're going to lean into it. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. Um, like in reclaiming the crone as wise and powerful and as aspirational is such a phenomenal thing. And it is so necessary because I think that's the journey. That's part of the journey back to soul, right? It's the inward journey. Because for as long as we are saying, I don't like, you know, I reject the aged or I belittle the aged or I see the aged as these caricatures. And we've all, I mean, we've all seen these witches at Halloween, right? That, that portrayal of the crone, which is so patriarchal. And, you know, we can reclaim that and find delight in those images as well. Don't let them keep them, reclaim them as ours, right? Mm -hmm. So there's so much there. In terms of looking at historical sources of Hecate as the crone, when we peel back through the centuries and go back to whether it's the Chaldean oracles or the the major kind of source of a lot of epithets, which is a basically... um, uh, some practitioners' personal journals on their practice with Hecate and other de- deities, known as the Greek ma- magical papyri, you know, she is not the crone. She's not referred to as crone. She's not referred to as old. Never. Very rarely. Once in a while, she's referred to as Kore, but which actually means the nameless woman, right? The nameless girl. Um, so that has a really complex meaning, too. It's not just as simple as like, how we would see maiden today to call her quarry doesn't mean, you know, doesn't mean what we think of as maidenhood today. So she's never called this. And it's not until the Romans kind of get a hold of her. And after the Romans have had her for a few centuries and Christianity starts to seep in when the Romans kind of officially start to transition to Christianity, that we get early Um, Christian propaganda against pagan deities, including Hecate, where she starts to appear as crone. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, of course, we have 20th century Wiccan neo-pagan authors who wrote about her as crone. And I, I won't speculate about their personal experience of her. They could have seen her as crone. But it's my uh, considered opinion that in reading things like um, Eusebius's um, preparation for the gospel, where he, I mean, he talks about Hecate. He was like, you know, you know, you know how you know these people, these men in particular, who get like, you know, possessed by a certain, right? and they, they really, really hate it. I mean, we see this, yeah. you just have to watch uh, Fox News to see this today. Yeah, they, yeah. You know, certain They're women jealous. threaten them so much, they can't stop talking about them. Exactly. So this is what happened uh, to Eusebius in preparation for the gospel. So that provides all this information about Hecate, her colors, her herbs, and so on. But it was because he was saying, you got to stay away from her. He wasn't glorifying her. So I think, when you read some of these texts, it's like, are they drawing from uh, the Pistis Sophia is another one that talks a lot about Hecate and gives her all these nefarious things because they were trying to get people to stay away from her. Not because they were like, this is so cool. She's associated with demons. It was, you know, they, it was, it was not the Hecate of ancient times. It was a very certain way they were. These authors were manipulating um, both her, archetype in her presentation as a great mother and all the great mother figures, not just Hecate, 
but you know, so it was they were they were trying to convince people to stop being involved with Hecate. It's not a how-to manual for us. Right, right. right? It was like either, and and they're playing both sides of it, right? It's like, stay away because she's involved in all of these dangerous things that will like lead you into damnation. And also on the other hand, they're casting her as this crone of waning power and significance and less threatening. Say, yeah. Right. So they're, they're trying to like play both sides of that propaganda. And like, just like we see today, you can't have it all the ways I, I have. OK, so I have obviously so many other questions, but I'm going to save them because I can see they fit better into another conversation. I hope we'll have this fall about um, entering Hecate's Garden, um, the book that came out uh, in 2020 that you've released that that really, as you say, kind of I just I have I have just way more to ask about all of that. But for now. Um, I'm the last question on the podcast is always about grief and rage. And I feel like, um, they, that Hecate is so open and welcoming of these things, but I'm curious how you personally, given the world as it is, how do you, Cindy, cope with grief and rage? Well, I think in my advancing years as a menopausal woman, um, I think I have learned to be comfortable with grief and rage. Whereas in the past, when I was younger, and I know many of us go through this, um, I was possessed by my grief and rage. It was using me instead of me being in alliance with it. And I, you know, and I, that is a journey that, However you experience healing, whether you go into my work or your work, Carmen, whatever work you go into, that the healing journey will lead you to that place where the emotions are not overwhelming. And for me, um, because I have been at this for 30 years in different ways of pushing forward um, women's rights, children's rights, family rights, being supportive of First Nations, um, certainly, of course, the LGBTQIA plus community, all these things. I've been around, I've been around the blocks, lots of blocks. Um, and I used to be really, really angry all the time. And, you know, wherever you're at in your life, just let yourself feeling angry. Because if you stop being angry about being angry, you get to what's actually going on with the grief and rage. And we all are grieving and raging about so many things coming out of the pandemic. You know, all, everything that's going on around us in the news, there is lots to rage at. But we can rage, we can be with rage instead of letting rage override who we are. And I and I think that's a journey. You know, it's not something we're going to wake up or do one 15 minute meditation and be able to do, but stick with it. Like you can learn to be in communion with your grief and rage instead of it running you. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. And I, I really appreciate your articulation of that. And I can see how, um, you know, Hecate leads us to the beauty at the core of our rage and what we can make out of it. So I, I really appreciate how much, you've given to the world and in helping to lift up this really important goddess. Thanks for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. Wasn't that great? 
my gosh, I have so many follow-ups. To learn more about Cindy's work and find out what courses are currently available, go to keepingherkeys.com. And I promise I will continue to court her and woo her back onto the show so we can um, hear more about the nuts and bolts of working with Hecate and perhaps also with Medea and Circe. Today, I would like to thank the 24 listeners tuning in from Auckland, New Zealand, the nine listeners in Canterbury, four in Wellington, and two in the area of the Bay of Plenty. New Zealand, you are a light of clarity in a chaotic world, and your pandemic approach is a lesson sadly ignored by much of the world, but you are modeling that a different way of being together is possible. And it's, it's more than just your island nation status. I believe that. It's really so much more. It's a quality of humanness that is shining through. It's been, yeah, I, I'm speechless. It's been so inspiring uh, and helped me hold steady to my own personal values, like in terms of how I want to show up for the collective in collapsed times. So thank you, New Zealand. You deserve a standing ovation for... Uh, holding on to the best parts of humanity in pandemic times. I'm honored some of you uh, choose to spend time with me. If y'all would like to stay connected, you can follow me on Instagram at Carmen Spaniola or go to my website to find out how you can access nearly all of my current offerings for one low monthly membership in the Numinous Network. You'll find all the details at CarmenSpaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N. S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care.